Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Don Winslow. Don is a New York Times bestselling author of over 20 crime and mystery novels, including The Cartel, The Force, and The Border, as well as many short stories and film screenplays. Every one of his books has been sold to a major film studio or network. Some books two or three times, and several are in the works. His upcoming film and TV projects include the Cartel Trilogy, being adapted for a TV series by FX with Don, Shane Salerno, and Ridley Scott, executive producing, as well as The Force with Matt Damon, director James Mangold, and screenwriter Scott Frank, all attached. His new book, Broken, goes on sale on April 7th with its tour, which was set to begin on April 6th and included sold-out events at major cities across the country, from NYC to LA, uh, with major introductions by major authors like Lee Child, now cancelled. Don has launched a virtual tour strategy. Don was a long bio, but how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, given the circumstances, it's all going fine. My first question is usually, where are you in the world right now? But I understand as I ask that question these days, the answer is always going to be home. Where is home for you right now? Home is a little town north of San Diego. We usually sort of don't give the name of it because I've written so much about the drug cartels. But I, uh, I live on an old ranch about an hour north and east of San Diego. And before we talk about Broken and the virtual book tour, Tell us about your origin story. Did you always want to be an author? What was the career trajectory that led up to this point now that you're a New York Times bestselling author? You know, if you want to be a doctor, you go to medical school and and you're a doctor. If you want to be a lawyer, you go to law school and they stamp your papers and you're a lawyer. There is no such thing for a writer. I've always wanted to be a writer since I was a little kid. My mom was a librarian. My dad was a sailor who loved books. I grew up around books and storytellers. So I've always wanted to do that for as long as I can remember. But the world didn't agree, you know, for uh, 30 some odd years. So the trajectory was kind of bumpy. And as far as moving on to process, we usually frame our episodes around specific themes. In this case, I'd love to focus half the episode on the virtual book tour and what that is, and half being the process of how you wrote Broken. Does that sound good? Sure, it's fun. Before we begin, I just want to read the description of the book. Is that cool? Can I do my worst? Yeah, go for it. All right. In six intense short novels connected by the themes of crime, corruption, vengeance, justice, loss, betrayal, guilt, and redemption, Broken is number one international bestseller Don Winslow at his nerve-shattering, heart-stopping, heartbreaking best. In Broken, he creates a world of high-level thieves and low-life crooks, obsessed cops struggling with life on and off the job, private detectives, dope dealers, bounty hunters, and fugitives, the lost souls driving without headlights through the dark night on the American criminal highway. With his trademark blend of insight, humanity, humor, action, and the highest level of literary craftsmanship, Winslow delivers a collection of tales that will become classics of crime fiction. And I have a couple quotes as well. You can't ask for more emotionally moving entertainment. That's from Stephen King himself. And then also, after three epic scale masterpieces, The Cartel, The Force, and The Border, Winslow returns with a delicious serving of small plates, a greatest hits album with all new melodies. What could be sweeter? And that's from Booklist. Those are some really cool quotes. People are saying a lot of good things about it. How are you feeling about the book in general? Yeah, listen, really good. And and I'm grateful for those quotes. You know, Stephen King's been great to me over the years, and and a lot of critics have. I feel good about the book. You know, for most of the last 20 years of my career, I've been a a kind of a long distance ultra marathon runner, writing these books that span decades and continents and with multiple characters. So these stories, you know, they're not epic in scale, but they're still substantive. You know, they, they take place over the course of days as opposed to the course of decades. They've, they've been stories I've wanted to tell now for a while, most of them. And so it's nice to kind of 
if you will, to torture the metaphor, run that middle distance for a change and see what possibilities that brings up. Let's talk about the digital tour itself. As I mentioned earlier, the 20-city tour, set to begin on April 6th, has now been replaced with a virtual tour strategy. Tell us what that all means. What is a virtual tour? How did you come about deciding what it is? And what are your feelings and thoughts, given that the previous tour that was set up is now canceled? Listen, it's, it's obviously a disappointment. It's always good to go out and meet the reader. You know, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one is, of course, without those readers, I don't have this job that I love. So it's, it's fun to get out and, and press the flesh and say hello and share the same space together, something that we, you know, do less and less in this culture. I also feel strongly about the bookstores. You know, those bookstores, particularly the independent bookstores, have supported me forever. You know, when I was selling, you know, two books instead of several hundred a night, those people were there. And so I want to be there for them. So you set up a 20-city tour to go out to do that. And then this extraordinary, unprecedented crisis hits. And you have to find a way to respond the best you can to support the book, to support the readers, and to support the bookstores. And what does it look like? What does the digital tour look like? Is it, you know, a live stream? Is it interviews like this podcast? Walk us through kind of how you get the word out in the same way that you normally would. Yeah, listen, this is all in process, right? This is all uncharted territory for everybody. And let me say also, you know, it, it feels a little bit weird to be bringing a book out and promoting it at, at times when people are, are sick and dying and, and suffering. There are all these problems. It was simply too late to pull the book back. You know, that train had left the station. So we're trying to do a variety of things. I think most of it will be live streaming events, you know, remote live streaming where people can log in from their homes or wherever and, you know, see my little face on camera and ask questions and I'll probably do some readings. And so I think that it's like a lot of things that are happening right now, you know, schools and business meetings. All of that kind of thing are, are taking place in what reminds me of, of Star Trek when I was a kid, where you look at that screen and, and talk to people. And at that point, it looked like science fiction, and, and now it's our reality. How do you go about setting up a home studio for this kind of situation? Do you have a room in your house that's got a nice, clean wall? And you know, how do you set up for that? How do you get something that's presentable? Listen, I hope my office is presented. <laughs> uh, I hadn't really thought that through. I have two offices. One is in my home. The other is literally a minute walk away down a dirt road. And it's a former gas station, believe it or not, that my wife and I took over. And she has a studio there. And, and I have my office there. That's where I do most of my work. And so, you know, I, I looking around, that's where I am right now. Looking around me, you know, there are some posters for my books. There are some surfing photos. There are all kinds of things. So I hope it looks decent and I hope it looks nice. I hope, though, that really, you know, people just want the information and they want to have the conversation. I don't know that it matters all that much where it takes place or what the background looks like. I hope it's good. I'll try to make it the best that it can be. Is there a silver lining in the sense that, you know, people watching you in your own home may be an even more personal experience in a way than, say, meeting you in person? Obviously, in person, you're there. But when they look at you in your own home, there's a certain vulnerability to that, right? Yeah. You know what? I hadn't thought about that. I think you, you might be on to something there. It might be kind of fun. and It, it might have a, a whole different feel about it. You know, look, I think... In some ways, you know, the, the more technology we have to communicate, the less we actually do it. And that's why, what I think the importance of bookstores and libraries really are now, is that we get to go out and we share the same space and time together. Now, because of this crisis, we're, we're going to have to reinvent that. We're going to have to, to find that intimacy and that connection in literally unconnected ways, where we're, where we're not physically connected. So I think in some ways, we're, we're going to have to try a little harder. So maybe that's it, you know, maybe if I'm in my home study, 
people might enjoy that and feel a bit more connected or it's coming from the old gas station where I work now. Maybe we'll feel connected. I think we just have to, to make, at this point in time, an extraordinary effort. What are the moral obligations of an author such as yourself or anyone who is a public figure right now? Obviously, you have an audience. Are there certain things you feel an obligation to communicate? You know, a lot of people are saying stay home, these kind of things, which are important. Do you feel that obligation? Sure. Look, you know, I think that, that about once every year or so, there's sort of a narrow window where I have an audience, although I have a fairly large, you know, moderate, I guess, Twitter following. And I, I try to put out news on that and, and kind of information and encouragement. So I think it's not just incumbent on writers or public figures right now. It's incumbent on all of us, you know, to do what we can do, to listen to the scientists, listen to the experts, be careful, take care of each other, try to do what we can for people who are having a tough time taking care of themselves. So, you know, let's, let's all do that. What's happening right now? As a writer, do you find any inspiration for these times? I'm sure there's a lot of writers who are kind of soaking in kind of what's going on right now, and I'm sure we'll be seeing in the future a lot of stories that are inspired by what's happening right now. Are these times inspiring you at all as far as stories or anything? Not so far, no. I think it's, for me, way too early to think in those terms. We'll see what happens. You know, I'm always working on on one or two books. I, I was just before our conversation began. And I, I probably will afterwards. As a crime writer right now, thank God there are no crime inspiration stories. Companies. Stay tuned. You know, now we've had, you know, at least two senators who have, you know, apparently sold off stock with insider knowledge. And if you want to talk about crime, that, that certainly qualifies. For those writers who are at home and they're finding themselves you know, maybe a little frustrated, maybe a little bit restless and having difficulty focusing and writing at home. What would you say? What's your advice for those who are trying to make the most out of obviously a not great situation? Listen, I feel the same way myself. There's a lot of stress right now. There's a lot of anxiety. I live out in the country, so I go out and take walks and runs, you know, two to four miles on an abandoned dirt road near us. But I, I think basically, the writer's work is isolated, isn't it, in many ways. At, at the end of the day, it always comes down to a writer sitting with some sort of writing instrument, usually alone, in terms of novels anyway, and banging it out. And so that much hasn't changed. So I think in, in my life, when there have been issues and problems and and difficulties, as there are, of course, in, in anybody's life. For me, the answer has always been to go to the to go to the keyboard, you know, to to sit down and write what I can write. And if that's ten or fifteen pages, fantastic. If that's one or two pages, fine. But I, I think that's always going to be the writer's refuge is just sit down and write, you know, get the work done. As far as reading books, are you yourself using this time to read? Does reading inspire your own writing? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there are two necessary things for a writer, and I, I don't mean to sound glib here. One is writing. You have to write. And the other is reading. To learn to be a good writer, the more you read, the better off you're going to be. Now, 90% of my reading is research reading which I love and I adore it, but it doesn't allow me a lot of time for pleasure reading. So now I have a little bit more time for that, you know, so absolutely I am. This morning I was reading a book about the Asia-Pacific front in World War II. I've been rereading some Raymond Chandler novels, which are always inspirational and, and always just, you know, great stuff to read. The other thing I've been doing is looking at some crime films I haven't had a chance to watch in a while. Before we move on to process, do you think that creative solutions for content, like what you're doing for this virtual tour, how will these innovations that are happening now change how content is made in general over the next year or two years? Yeah, you know, I don't have a crystal ball. And as, as we've discovered, you know, I'm a, I'm a techno idiot. So I might not be the best person to ask, but 
I'm already seeing columns about how this is going to change the workplace, about how, you know, corporations might be shutting down offices because they discover that we can do this remotely. Book tours are expensive. You know, there's travel and hotels and, and all kinds of things to it. So people might end up taking a different look at it. We're just going to have to see how this plays out. It's really early days, you know, and it feels experimental to me. Again, these are uncharted times, uncharted territory. We're just going to have to see how it works out. But yeah, to get back to the question that you actually asked me, I, I can see it potentially changing things. For those fans of your work and those looking forward to this digital tour, is there a place they can currently go to check out the schedule? Yeah, go to donwinslow.com, go to my website, we're keeping updates there, go to my Twitter feed, we're keeping up with developments there. The other thing to do is, is of course, to contact the host bookstore, and they'll be posting these things on their websites or, you know, or call them up and, and chat with them. So there are any number of ways that people can keep track of this and find out. But we're putting the information out on the website and on Twitter. Do you imagine there'll be an opportunity for fans to engage and comment and for you to kind of reply back? Or do you think it'll be more kind of prepped conversations that you'll be communicating? Oh, no, absolutely. I think that there'll be the opportunity for people to ask questions. I think that technology is there. And I'm really looking forward to that. To me, that's my favorite part of these sessions is the Q&A with the readers by far. So we will make every effort to make that possible. Are you finding that you're partaking in more podcasts such as this now that you are, you know, we are all isolated to our homes? Have you found that that's become a bigger part of your digital tour strategy as well? Yeah, so far it seems to be. Again, it's early days. You know, we're all scrambling to, to get this done. You know, typically, I mean, I, I would come to these podcasts in person and we do it that way. Now we can't and we shouldn't. And so we'll do this. But yeah, I, I think we're going to be seeing more of this. Let's talk about the book itself. I would love to talk process. So for Broken, I guess we could start at the beginning. The inception of an idea. You've written a lot of books. Maybe using Broken as an example, where do you come up with your ideas? Where do you start? Where does an idea come into your head? How did you come up with the idea for Broken? Well, it's six separate novellas. So we're talking six separate experiences. You know, they all differ. I'm not sure that I want to try to dig too deeply into my own head to figure out where ideas come from. You know, with a lot of my books, with a lot of the big drug books, they came from the newspapers. You know, I'm just following reality and, and what's happening. So in the case of Broken, though, you know, sometimes it's just a line that sticks in your head. And then you ask yourself, OK, why is that? one line sticking in my head and then you get to play that great writer's game what if you know uh okay what if this happened and what if that happened and, and sometimes that leads you down some productive avenues and and sometimes it leads you into box canyons but it's it's really fun to do so there's no single answer to that sometimes i am walking around and and something will hit me you know, with, with one of the stories, the last story in the collection, The Last Ride, it unfortunately is from the news. It's, it's about a Border Patrol agent who decides to try to save a kid who's in one of these cages separated from her family. Other times with these things, I was looking at older books of mine, older characters that, that readers ask me about a lot, and I had some fun bringing them back. And how do you pitch a book once you're, you know, you come up with the idea, you're like, I want to make this. I imagine as a best-selling author, you probably already have an agent and an editor. What is your process? Do you have to write a formal pitch? Do you just call them up and say, hey, listen, this is the idea that I have? How do you go about kind of getting that into motion? Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm very, very lucky and I've done better in my career than I ever thought I would probably ever deserve to. So at this point in time, I don't really need to pitch. Now, Broken came out of a conversation with my agent, Shane Salerno, who is also, you know, an A-list screenwriter in his own right. So he, he gets writers and he gets the process. So we talked about this for a while. He was saying, you know, you've talked about some stories and ideas that you've had in your head running around. Maybe they're not the sort of epic novels you've been writing, but, you know, would you, would you think about that? Would you think about, you know, taking some of those ideas and putting them into action? And, and I thought, 
yeah, you know what? Actually, I would. Actually, I think that would be fun. And I think that, that readers might like them. So it, this really came out of that conversation. But I, I don't really have to kind of pitch anymore or write formal kinds of, you know, synopses and that kind of thing. It, it really is a, a conversation with the publisher and with my agent. And, and we see what we all like and, and what we all think might work. A quick aside for those writers who are in the process of querying, do you have suggestions? Imagine at one point you queried yourself. Do you have suggestions for those who are in that process? Yeah, absolutely I do. You know, look, that first sentence you write on a query letter better be the best first sentence you write. Because if it's not, they won't get past it. They won't get to the second sentence. Everyone's too busy and there are too many query letters coming in. So what I I say to aspiring writers, and I talk to, to them a lot, you know, because I consider aspiring writers to be colleagues, by the way, and we can talk more about that if you'd like. But I say, look, spend a lot of time on that query letter, particularly the first sentence, because, boy, it's, it's got to be a killer. It's got to be a zinger. And you've got to make that reader read the next sentence. The other thing that I would say is, you know, the, the very last part of that query letter ought to be, it's not about the, the proposed book, it's about you as the writer. Who are you and, and what makes you qualified to write this novel? What's, what's special about you that gives you the chops to write this particular book? And for your manuscript, when you pitch your agent and editor and you want to get this book made, so you don't have to do a formal pitch, but where is the manuscript at? I imagine you probably don't start it until you get the green light. Oh, very often start it before I pitch it because I want to know if it's going to work. <laughs> you know, listen, I mean, we all get a lot of ideas and that's great. That's the fun of it. You know, some of them aren't, aren't ready yet. Do you know what I mean? Or they're never going to be. Or they might be short stories or they might be anecdotes, you know. And so... I like to, to get a number of pages down and then see, you know, if that horse has legs before I will discuss it with anybody or, or certainly take it to a publisher. Let's talk about the writing of the book itself. The first step for most authors is the outline. Would you say that you're an outline person? Most use it, but some people we've interviewed don't. What about yourself? How uh, much time do you put into that outline? None. I, um, I don't outline. Wow. How do you plot your story without an outline? Trial and error. Here's the thing. Listen, I'm not against outlines, and I think that they, that they can be quite useful and at times necessary. And at times I'll sit like with a yellow manuscript pad and I'll write, what if, you know, this happens, this happens, this happens, and see where it goes. But I don't do really mapped out formal outlines because I don't want to feel locked into that. I don't want to eliminate possibilities that might come up spontaneously from the writing. You know, this is going to sound airy-fairy, and I'm not a very airy-fairy guy, but sometimes those characters will just do and say things you didn't expect. And, and quite often it leads you down a new road that, that can be really good and is better than, than what you might have been planning. So I know myself well enough that I know if I write a really formal outline, I will stick to it because that's just the cat that I am. Uh -huh. uh, and so I have to fight against that tendency and to stay open to possibilities. Given that you just said you don't always outline, where do you begin to start? Obviously, a novel or book is a huge undertaking. And uh, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of pages. How do you begin to even start? Are you thinking through characters? Are you thinking through scenes? You know, how do you kind of work through those ideas before you start sitting down and just typing? Character, character, character. Look, if for a number of reasons. And th again, this is just my process. I'm not saying it's the only one or it's the right one. This is just how I do it. If the reader doesn't care about the character, it does not matter what the character goes through. You can, you can come up with as many wonderful plot devices as you can. It won't matter at all if the reader doesn't care about who's experiencing it. So for me, character is paramount. And I won't start to write until I know that character pretty well. 
Now, again, at times they'll surprise me. And maybe I didn't know them as well as I thought. But I really want to know who that man is, who that woman is, and what they want. You know, what's, what are they trying to do? Now, in the case, for instance, of mystery novels, which I really don't write, that can be fairly basic. They want to solve the crime. But in, in sort of the deeper, better kind of literature in our genre, they're also trying to solve something about themselves as well as the crime. So, and I write a lot about criminals as well, you know. So I want to know that character. I, I want to know, you know, where they came from, what they see when they get up in the morning, what they eat, what they drink, what their environment is like. And I, I won't start to write until the character starts to talk to me. Until the character starts coming up with dialogue, I, I won't start typing. What about themes? Do you have uh, usually have a message or a theme from the very beginning when you start to write a, a book, or do you kind of come up with those as you're writing it? No, I don't. I'm a novelist. I'm a, a crime fiction writer. I'm not a politician or a philosopher, you know? So sometimes themes will emerge in the books, particularly the ones that are closer to reality, such as the big drug trilogy I did. And then I think there was a, a sort of political theme in that, that the war on drugs has, has been a tragedy. But I, I think that the, the sort of ultimate theme in crime fiction, or at least in my crime fiction, is how do you try to live decently in what is basically an indecent world? When I really think about it, think about my characters, that question seems to be always coming up. And I think that that kind of is the question of, of noir fiction, certainly. So I always have that theme in the background. But I, again, I'm not writing an eighth grade paper, you know. I'm writing a novel that hopefully entertains people, lets them see a world in, in maybe a way that they couldn't see it otherwise. That's really my job. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favorite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And what's your process for writing the book itself? Do you write a chapter at a time? Do you kind of do a full pass through everything and then break it into chapters after? How do you tackle the greater work itself? I treat it like a J-O-B. I start at 5.30 in the morning and I stop around 5 in the evening. Now I take breaks, obviously. And I'll write as many decent pages as I can. Now, I know that given that schedule, around mid-afternoon, the chances of my writing anything new that's decent are, are low. <laughs> <laughs> so what I do is I, I go back over either that day's writing or an earlier day's writing and look to see if I can improve it. So I'm constantly in the rewriting process. But then once I've gotten down a full draft, then I'll set it down for a few days and walk away from it. And then I'll come back and I'll start to rewrite it from head to toe. When you're writing the book itself, how do you balance 
dialogue versus description. So obviously, there's a lot of authors who like to get really detailed with their descriptions, and there's not as much dialogue. But for you, how do you balance it? I think that, that um, you know, it was Frank Lloyd Wright, I, I think it was, who famously said in terms of architecture that, that form follows function. I think in terms of writing, style follows story. So I don't have a, a sort of percentage or a ratio in mind of, of dialogue to description. I think that the story dictates what that is. Now, that requires a lot of trial and error. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll like look at a chapter I just did when a, a character is going on and on, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'll look at that and I'll go, man, that's a lot of talking. You could take it out of dialogue and put it into narrative and probably do it better. There are other times, though, when I think that it might not be best coming out of the character's mouth, per se. But it's better inside the character's head than it is in that omniscient third-person voice, getting technical here. So rather than me sort of standing back and as the all-knowing author write description, I literally try to see it through the character's eyes but have it run through his or her head as opposed to his or her mouth. How many passes do you make? You said second half of the day, sometimes you'll go back through and you'll edit some of your previous work. What does your editing process look like? I imagine after you finish the first draft, you will keep going back through and kind of ironing it. How long does that process take? Months. Look, you do sort of, or I do, a kind of a mega rewrite, which might be structural. I might have had chapters in the wrong place or events kind of out of dramatic order. Or I might find that, man, those three chapters don't belong in the book at all, but I missed something else. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I missed backstory on a character. Or maybe, as has happened to me a couple of times, I've written the wrong ending. You know, the ending's unsatisfying, which happens to me, I think, fairly frequently. I think I chicken out a little bit on the ending on the first couple of drafts, and then I have to take a deep breath and and go back and write the correct ending. Once the, the novel, I think, is structurally in good shape, then I work toward the micro, if that makes any sense. You know, once the macro is done, then, I mean, I'll do goofy things. Like, sometimes I'll take a couple of hours and a chapter or two and just look at verbs. I mean, literally, only look at the verbs. Because the verbs are really, you know, the spine of the story. That's what's moving the story to see, is it the most accurate verb? Is it the most vivid verb? Is there a better one available to me that's still accurate? And I'll make those changes and and you'd be shocked at how that could lift a chapter. I'll read dialogue out loud to myself because it's funny. You, You won't necessarily hear the right notes, but you will definitely hear the wrong notes. The sour notes, if you read them out loud, will will stick out to you, you know, and then then you can you can change it and make it better and adjust it. So it's really a matter of, of macro to micro. Once the structural issue are settled, and those are really the most difficult, then I just I just keep sandpapering. You know, there's a mixing metaphors again, but that's another way of looking at it. You know, you you start with with a chisel, right? And you start cutting or you start adding, and then eventually you're getting down to very, very fine sandpaper. You mentioned going through the verbs carefully. What about with dialogue, the word said, this character said this, this character said that, but you know, there's a lot of different ways to say said, and you don't want to overdo it, yet you have to communicate that a lot throughout the book. How do you find creative ways to kind of say that over and over without it feeling repetitive? Yeah, I don't. You know, the late, great, much beloved, you know, Elmore Leonard said, you know, always use say or said. And for the most part, I stick to that because the reader's eye tends to skip over it, frankly, and goes right back to the dialogue. I don't want to get into a lot of fancy sorts of words just trying to evade that because I I think for the most part it gets in the way. Now, every once in a while, I will violate Mr. Leonard's rule and use some other verb in place of, of said. Now, I write a lot in the present tense. 
So typically for me, it's say and not said. Same issue, really. Other times, if, if I think that it's clear who's speaking anyway, then I, I won't give an attribution. I'll go three or four lines of dialogue without, you know, attributing it to anybody, you know, without it, you know, Don said, Don says, I'll just skip it. Obviously, a novel, one thing that makes it different than, say, a screenplay is you're writing the perspective of the character's thoughts, whereas with a screenplay, maybe you just say the action you're seeing. Does that make it more challenging for you, or do you find that it really enhances the medium? It enhances it enormously. I mean, you're dead on. That is the big difference between narrative fiction and film or TV, is that we have that opportunity to get into the character's head and describe it. And it is absolutely invaluable. I would say it's probably two-thirds of my narrative take place inside the character's head. Because again, I, I view my job as bringing the reader into a world that he or she otherwise couldn't enter. And most of the time, the way that I choose to do that is through the experience, the point of view of the character. So the character's thoughts are absolutely essential. So I, I don't look at it as a problem. I look at it as just one of the best tools that I have. As far as the editing process, we had talked about your process going through it, but I imagine there's probably an editor through the publishing house. Is there someone who's there working through it with you, or are they more hands-off given You've written a lot of books now. Well, I, listen, yes. To answer your question, basically, yes. You know, usually my agent Shane takes a read. He'll give me some ideas. And then it goes to an editor who will give me more ideas. They probably don't edit as much as they used to when I was a novice because there's probably not as much need. At the same time, they can tell you some very valuable things. And I, I think that writers need to be open to that input, you know, and not be defensive. It's easy to be defensive. Nobody really likes criticism, you know. So when that editorial letter first arrives, I always wince a little bit. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of work. Do they hate it? You know, and I can be defensive about it. I have to make sure that I kind of clean my head, check my ego at the door, and look at their comments seriously, because they're smart people. And, you know, they've done it before. And they're good readers. And so I, I will tell you that, that there aren't a lot of people whose opinions I listen to, because I think it's possible to be nibbled to death by ducks, you know, if you're looking at too many people's opinion. But in terms of, of Shane, my agent, and my editor, you know, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm going to, to pay very close attention to it. and and ask myself, are they right? Do they have a point? And if they do, I'll address it. Now, sometimes I'll think, no, you know, maybe they have a point, but that's not the book I want to write, and I know the book I want to write, and, and I stick with, with what I originally had. Subsequently, you know, then comes the process of copy editing, where these saints, you know, <laughs> take any scripts and go through it you know, for mistakes and typos and details. And, you know, was he wearing a red shirt on page 68, but on page 70, he's wearing a blue shirt. When did he right. change it? You know, that kind of thing, continuity. And there's a special place in heaven for those people. Tell me. For those writers who are writing a book and, you know, you just talked about the copy editing process. For those who are, you know what, don't worry about that because, uh, you know, the copy editors will handle that. Where does that actually come to play? What's the realistic thing there? Because a lot of writers might think, oh, you know, maybe the copy editors can deal with that. But at the same time, obviously, a lot of people say it should be as close to perfect as possible. So how do you find that balance? Uh, it should be as close as perfect as possible. <laughs> now, listen, the as possible is an important, important point. <laughs> you know, I might think I have a perfectly clean manuscript. I try to turn in as clean a manuscript as I can because that's just polite, right? It's just professional. but. I mean, most of my books are pretty long, you know, and people are going to find things and, and God bless them. Again, you can't be defensive about it. You know, you have to say, uh, okay, yeah, I had that one wrong. Thanks for catching. You know, now occasionally they'll be wrong. You know, I've seen it happen. And then you need to say, yeah, thanks again. But no, this is, this is what I meant to say. The idea that authors exist on their own is really a false one. 
You know, we like to think that, but I think of, you know, elementary school teachers who taught me how to read in the first place and librarians who, who gave me the ability to have books when I didn't have money and, and a lot of people. So by the time a book comes out, I'm telling you, man, there are a lot of people who've been involved in it. How do you know when the copy editing phase is completed and it's really the book is ready to be published and to move on to the marketing phase? The publisher tells you. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, there, there are just distinct phases of copy editing, typically three or four of them. And when that's done, it's done. And, and hopefully there are no more errors, but sometimes there are. But eventually you have to publish the book. You know, you just do. And so you say, okay, it's locked and it's going in. And, and now we're moving ahead on something else. Now, mind you, by the time all that happens, I am, you know, neck deep in the next book. Tell us about the title. A lot of authors can sometimes, when they're submitting to an agent or an editor, there's a title already at the query stage. For you, do you have a title from the very beginning or do you tend to decide that last minute as close as possible? Yeah, as close as possible. I rarely have a title and it, it's so difficult to do. It's not a process I enjoy. I very rarely have a title before, you know, I like to do it maybe the very last moment, you know case something really good suggests itself, like it did in this case, by the way. So I don't, uh, yeah, I, I don't have a title in mind for books. When it comes time to choose that title, what are the ways in which you go about it? Are you kind of um, throwing ideas around with yeah. friends, family, publisher? What does it all look like? Yeah, all of the above. I mean, it's a conversation with the agent, with the publisher, with the editor, with yourself, you know. What do I want that book to look like? What do I want that cover to convey? You know, the old cliche, you know, don't judge a book by its cover is true, but people buy them by their cover very often. And so you need to be aware of that. So there, there's just a, a lot that goes into it. And, and I think that everybody has to be happy with it, you know, and that can take quite a bit of back and forth and, and just a lot of spitballing. And then at some point, typically there's this eureka moment. It's like I said about the bad notes in dialogue. All of a sudden you hear the right note on the title and, and everybody kind of goes, oh yeah, yeah, that's it. That's the Is there a pro and a con to a one word title? Like uh, Broken, for instance? I think so. I think that shorter titles tend to be better. At the same time, maybe you're, you're sacrificing a, a bit of nuance at times. I, I have written some longer titles, you know, The Power of the Dog. I, I think early in my career, I wrote a book called A Long Walk Up the Water Slide. Far too long a title. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think a lot of times that that one word title has a certain kind of strength to it, you know, that can be compelling. What about a cover? Similarly, I'm assuming you have to make that call closer to when the book is getting released. What's your involvement? Well, my involvement is to approve it, you know, to say, yeah, that's, that's the one I want, or, or early in the experience to say, no, I don't want that. But again, it's a very collective effort. A lot of people involved, a lot of very talented people involved, typically, you know, between editors and agents and publishers and designers and artists photographers and you know all kinds of folks getting involved in that process i love this cover by the way and so again it, it's very often a matter of you know it when you see it you certainly know it when you don't though you almost immediately know when a cover is wrong before we move into some bonus questions my last question is what's next for you you had mentioned you once you're finished with the book you start writing on a couple other books maybe can you talk about what's coming up for you writing-wise, or are you focused on Broken right now? Well, I'm focused on Broken. Listen, I'm always writing, and I am in the middle of two other books. I'm not sure I'm ready to kind of come out publicly and talk about them yet. But, you know, books like a baby, you know, from the time you turn it in to the time it comes out, it's about nine months. So I'm not going to kind of just sit there for nine months. I'm going to be writing another book because that's, that's what I do. So I'm always writing. But I'm not really at this point ready to say, say exactly what it is. You're a best-selling author. What's the next milestone you want to achieve? Obviously, you're going to keep writing books. You have some books being turned into films. Is there a particular milestone you want to accomplish? 
look, I'd be very sad if I thought I'd written my best book already, you know? And so the only milestone, as it were, I'm ever thinking about is to try to write a better book. And the problem with life is not that there's too few things to do, it's that there's too many. You know, there are too many books I want to write, too many books I want to read. And so it comes to a matter of choices. And so what I really want to do is, is to choose the best book I can possibly write and keep just trying to get better and better at it. Don, are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? <laughs> I guess so. We'll find out. Awesome. The first one you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you consider other writers your peers. What did you mean by that? Well, look, I think that there are a lot of aspiring writers out there and a lot of them very, very good. And people are always telling them they're not writers unless they've been published. And I, I dispute that. My opinion is if, if you sit down with, well, what used to be the empty page and I guess now is the empty screen and you work at this in a diligent fashion and you show up and you struggle with the written word, you're a writer. And don't let anybody ever tell you that you're not. And when you're a writer, then we are perforce colleagues. We basically do the same thing. Now, we may have had varying levels of commercial success, but that's a different topic. And so I have respect for anybody who, who sits down and does this. Love it. The next question I mentioned earlier that. All of your books have been turned into film slash TV projects, you know, the Cartel Trilogy, The Forced. How did those deals come about? I know you work with Shane Salerno, The Story Factory, and I know that a big part of what they do is get books adapted into films. So what does that look like and what's your involvement? You know, Shane's a genius at this. And again, as a writer, he, he gets writers and he's on the writer's side, which makes trust me on this, a huge, huge difference in this. I used to think that I shouldn't be very involved at all. The more, though, that I'm around this, the bigger a voice I want to protect the project and protect the quality of it. Now, having said that, I, I'm very aware that film and TV are different media than the written word, and they often have different needs, you know? And so, as novelists, we need to be open to that. But I also want the heart and soul of the book to be preserved in those projects. And so I want to see the scripts. I want to talk to the writers. I, I want to talk to the directors and the producers and, and all of that kind of thing. Next bonus question. If you could suggest a question that we ask one of our next guests, what would you ask and why? I'm always interested in what's the most important thing to a person in their work you know what matters to you so whenever we ask this question we always then flip that question on you what matters to you don quality love it next question is the life of an author glamorous <laughs> no and it shouldn't be and i'm glad it's not listen we have our moments you know i've had i go on book tours and all across the country and in europe and they they treat me beautifully and stay in nice places, and have nice meals. But 95% of my work is getting up before dawn and coming to the keyboard and writing. Now, having said that, I love what I do and I'm extremely grateful that I get to do it. You know, it's, it's always a humbling experience. But anybody who's with me at 5.15 in the morning would not describe it as glamorous. Next question. If you could take any writer to any fast food restaurant, which writer would you choose, which restaurant, and why? That's a great question. Any writer, living or dead? Living or dead. Wow. Wow. Uh, to a fast food place. Well, <laughs> I think that I would love to go to In-N-Out Burger with Jim Harrison. What would you order? A double Double. <laughs> love it. We had mentioned earlier you had given some advice to those writers who are working from home right now. But in general, what is one piece of advice or learning from your career if you had to choose one thing to pass along to those writers listening? 
Yeah, again, this is going to sound glib, and I, I really don't mean it to, okay? I mean this very, very sincerely and seriously. Writers write. That's it. You know, I think a lot of times writers will say, well, I have writer's block, or, you know, it's not going well today. And I, and I think that what writer's block really is is fear. It's fear of not doing it well. It's fear of failure. And what I would say is, don't be afraid of failure. I can guarantee you failure. I fail 30 times a day. I write more bad sentences than I write good sentences, you know? So failure is absolutely going to happen. And the thing of it is, is that if we let that stop us, then we fail permanently instead of temporarily. The other thing that I, I would say to writers is we hear a lot of no's. We get a lot of rejection. We hear a lot of no's. Please remember it only takes one yes. If you could say one thing to inspire hope, it doesn't have to be about writing, during these trying times right now, what would you say to those listening? Look, bad things happen, obviously. That, that's a silly thing to say now that I hear it coming out of my mouth. But we always get through them. You know, I, I don't want to sound sententious. I have a faith, though, in the, the basic goodness of people. I have a faith in the basic intelligence and ingenuity of people. Even now, people scrambling to find solutions in very creative ways. I see neighbors helping neighbors. I see a lot of good things. It's easy to dwell on the bad, and that's one of my real character flaws. I tend to be a pessimist. But at those times, we have to look at the good things and see them for what they are as well. Thank you, Don. Broken launches April 7th, and Don's digital tour is happening very soon. Don, did you want to plug, obviously, the book, anything else? Obviously, your website for those to uh, check out the book and follow you. Yeah, yeah. Go on donwinslow.com, and it'll all be there. And, uh, and I hope to quote, see, close quote you all you know, somewhere on this virtual tour. Amazing. You're navigating new waters. So good luck with everything. And we're excited to see what you do in the face of all this. Thank you. And thanks for being part of this. Thanks for helping me out. You know, I really appreciate your time. And you as well. Thank you for your insights and your time, Don. And you. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.